0: My name's uh, Larry Summers. Welcome to the JFK uh, Junior Forum. I am delighted to have the opportunity, on behalf of the IOP, the Belfer Center, and the Future of Diplomacy Project, to welcome Tom Donilon uh, to Harvard, to very briefly introduce Tom Don, uh, to very briefly introduce Graham Allison, and then to introduce my friend Tom Donilon at greater length. Graham Allison, who will be our questioner uh, tonight, is the founding dean of this institution, is the conceiver of the space in which uh, we sit, and has been a major presence in national security debates now for the better part of four decades, dating from his book, uh, Essence of uh, Decision, which is probably the best-known National security book of the last uh, 50 years that equips him to ask uh, thoughtful, tough, yet friendly questions of uh, our visitor. Tom Donlin and I have been uh, friends since I met him in the 1988 presidential campaign. At the time, we're the same age. I thought of myself as very young in 1988, and I was certainly completely inexperienced in the world of presidential politics at that time. Tom Donlin, on the other hand, in 1988, had worked 11 years before in uh, the White House and had been in charge of the management of delegate selection and delegate counting and the like at two Democratic conventions already, not including the 1988 uh, Democratic uh, Convention. Tom, that year, managed the preparation for the presidential uh, debates uh, in which Governor Dukakis uh, participated, and that was the first of half a dozen occasions in which Tom performed... Uh, that function for Democratic uh, presidential candidates. For most people, being such a leader of the political operation in one of America's two major political parties would be enough. That was Tom's first career. He had a second uh, career as a very successful counselor and uh, lawyer at O'Melveny, uh, the law firm, and at Fannie Mae. And the career for which he is best known and will be best known is as an important figure crafting American foreign policy. First, as the Assistant Secretary of State uh, to Secretary Christopher during President Clinton's uh, first term, then as Deputy National Security Advisor for the first half of President Obama's term, and for the last two and a quarter years as the National Security Advisor to the President of the United States. His has been a record of remarkable uh, success. I want to just conclude by highlighting one aspect of the way Tom does his job that I think should have particular resonance here at the university and has always struck me as extraordinary. Most people go into government with a certain amount of intellectual capital and then run it down because their jobs are very hard and they spend their day doing their jobs, which is managing um, a huge range of difficult uh, issues. In many years of knowing Tom, I have not encountered a single occasion on which a question of the form, what did you think of the XX article in the New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, Journal of Conflict Resolution, or any of uh, another dozen journals, was met with the response, what article, or I didn't see that one, rather than a carefully considered uh, opinion. He is constantly and without a break informing himself with respect to everything that is uh, going on you may recall that uh, a pair of books written about uh, the lessons of the Vietnam War in uh, the late night in the written uh, three or four years ago came to be frequently referenced in the context of White House decision making with respect to Afghanistan and Iraq. That was not an accident. That was because Tom had read both of those books and then encouraged everyone else of the importance of reading both of those books and learned their lessons uh, well. So if anyone doubts that knowledge, insight, and an understanding of scholarship is important to American foreign policy and to success in government, they should consider Tom Domlin's career. And if anyone doubts that the production of knowledge and scholarship performs an important function in influencing policy, they should also consider Tom Donlin's uh, career and uh, behavior. He is a remarkable public servant, and we are lucky to have him here tonight. Graham and Tom.
1: Thank, thank you very much, Larry, and it's a great honor to welcome Tom back here to the forum. We were teasing earlier Uh, When Warren Christopher, for whom he worked in a previous life, was coming to the forum, Tom was actually here with him as his chief of staff. And as Larry said, it's quite hard to believe, but Tom was 25 years old when he ran the first national convention. So this is an amazing career. What we're going to do tonight is uh, start with a conversation Uh, At Tom's suggestion, we're not gonna do quick Q and A, but rather uh, a conversation about topics that I think may be of general interest to all of us, including how he thinks about things as well as what's the answer to this or what's the answer to that. And then uh, we'll go to the audience where there's an opportunity for you to ask your questions and all questions are welcome as long as they're to the point and brief. But Tom, let me start out. uh, There are plenty of students here tonight who maybe they're a freshman in the college or maybe they're a student in the public policy program at the Kennedy School and they would imagine or hope or aspire in their dreams that they might grow up to have a career sort of like yours. But then occasionally you'll hear a comment and Larry already picked it up. Well, you know, I do policy, but I don't really do campaigns and elective politics because that's sort of something else. And you, you basically are, at least there's two Tom Donlans, and they're an integrated fact. So tell us a little bit about politics and policy as that would, would relate to somebody who's thinking about a career like yours.
2: Thank you, Graham, and, and thank you for having me here tonight. And uh, Larry, thank you for the kind introduction. Let me Before I answer your question, I want to talk about Larry for a second. Um, <laughs> Larry and I, as he said, have known each other a long time, but I want to talk about Larry's last um, uh, uh, period of public service. When uh, Larry came into the White House in, 19, in 2009, the country was going through its greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. We had lost, and I wanted to get the numbers here, so I, I'm going to look at a sheet here, we'd lost uh, 2 million jobs in the three months ending in February of 2009, which was the greatest pace and loss of jobs since 1945. The banking system was under great stress. Uh, and the economy and the nation was really on the precipice. And the president called on Larry to be his chief economic advisor as the director of the National Economic Council. Uh, and Larry did an extraordinary job. Uh, when, you, when you reflect back on it, and I want to reflect back on it now through the prism of the results, which is what's critical, obviously, the architect of the Recovery Act, uh, the person who led the international response uh, to the, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, economic crisis, the global economic crisis, uh, an architect of putting together the G20 as the prim- primary and premier mechanism for managing economic crises, the co-chair of the auto task force. Uh, and these contributions were critical to the American recovery. And the results today, of course, are 29 straight months now of private job creation, self- private sector job creation, um, I don't know, Larry, a dozen quarters of, of economic growth. Uh, and I think critically and comparatively, the United States, I think, is among the only economies today who has recovered to its pre-crisis level. And um, Larry had an awful lot to do with that, and I just wanted to recognize that tonight in terms of, uh, in terms of contribution. And um, it really was really an extraordinary extraordinary effort uh, that Larry put in working with President Obama on the economic recovery for this country. Uh, so
1: I wanted to mention that. So politics and policy. Right.
2: Um, a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, and people who are here tonight, I think, of, are, on the, uh, are thinking about this decision, decide to get involved in public policy. Uh, and even if your initial steps here are in the private sector, keep your hand in it. Find opportunities. Read deeply in it, almost in a systematic way, and look for opportunities to get involved. Is the first thing that I would say. Secondly, Larry's point is exactly right. Uh, the coin of the realm in policy is, is, is good ideas and intellectual capital. And it really is inside one of the great struggles that you have, which is to constantly try to access new and fresh intellectual capital, to avoid groupthink, to, uh, to uh, uh, avoid constantly going over the same ideas and just implementing them and not being able to step back. And one of the ways in which you avoid that right, uh, is to... Uh, Look outside for fresh intellectual capital, and it matters a lot. Institutions like this matter a lot. Uh, the production of ideas matters a lot uh, to the future of this country, and policy matters a lot. Uh, and I think the example I just gave with respect to the comparative economic recovery of the United States to many other parts of the world is a good example of that. Policy matters. With respect to my own career and the integration of politics and policy, um, I think that actually a, a career, the careers that I had in politics, uh, which you outlined, and, um, uh, and the career that I had in the law actually made substantial contributions to my uh, ability to do the job that I have today. Uh, you know, as you move around the world uh, and you engage with other countries and leaders uh, about uh, trying to solve problems, advance American interests, you're dealing with political people. Uh, you're dealing with people who are in politics, uh, people who have to be responsive to constituencies, uh, people who have political futures, uh, and having a sense of that I think is, uh, is a benefit, frankly, uh, in, uh, uh, in a national security job. You know, the, the, a person who had an, obviously an insight into this, and it's embodied in the title of his memoir, Secretary of State, is Jim Baker. And the title of his memoir, I think, is, is The Politics of Diplomacy. Yep. And that was one of the themes, I think, that ran, that runs through Secretary Baker's, uh, Secretary Baker's book. Um, so the last thing I'd say on this is that um, um, history and reading history uh, really matters, I think. Uh, getting a sense of having been there, how others thought about uh, the challenges that you might face as a policymaker, and critically, understanding the perspective of other players and countries. What is the policy context? What's the historical context? You know, history is very much alive in a lot of these places, right? Very much front of mind. And a keen understanding of that really gives you an advantage, I think, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in public policy and in... Uh, and in diplomacy, someone, by the way, who practiced this—who uh, practiced this, and I've watched him now for twenty years—is Nick Burns, who's here tonight as well, mm-hmm. uh, who brought, you know, for example, uh, in the projects that he worked on, for example, in the U.S.-India relationship, a deep understanding of the history of that relationship, but the history in India, uh, and what perspectives his interlocutors were bringing to the problem.
1: So those are some of the, some initial thoughts. Okay. So you would say to uh, a young policy wonk, uh, get involved in politics. I would. I well. quote. Yeah. I
2: would quote. You know, my
1: uh, as you as
2: you mentioned, you know. One of my uh, great uh, mentors and friends is Warren Christopher, who was my uh, law partner, uh, who was secretary of state uh, in, the first, in the first Clinton term, and I was his chief of staff. Uh, and he was my friend. He was the uh, law clerk to William O. Douglas. Christopher was, the, Secretary Christopher was the first editor of the Stanford Law Review. Uh, and uh, went to work, came out uh, east, uh, from North Dakota originally, right, and ended yeah. up at Stanford. Came out east and went to work for William O. Douglas. And the, uh, uh, he repeated to me many times, the advice that, that Justice Douglas gave him was this, get out in the stream of history and swim as fast as you can. And okay. that's my, that would be my advice as well.
1: I see. That's very good advice. Yeah. When uh, one of your illustrious predecessors as National Security Advisor... They're all he, illustrious. All of them. Uh, yes. Some more illustrious yes. than yes. others. And the one who might regard himself as the most illustrious of your predecessors... Henry Kissinger, my old professor, was here last spring. Mm-hmm. And a student got up and asked him, uh, what did you do in college or in graduate school? What did you study, what course, what did you read that you thought best prepared you for statescraft?" Mm-hmm. Let's see what he, what he, what he said. Okay. If the forum... I
3: believe, it's a general proposition, that the best preparation for government is to study Philosophy or political theory, and history, because it trains your thinking and forces you to examine your uh, assumptions.
1: Okay, mm-hmm.
2: what about that? I agree with that, as I just said. I think that I think that a deep reading of history is absolutely essential, uh, and uh, you know, as Larry said. You've got to continue it. Uh, and as you run into new problems, take the time to read, uh, to read into them. Make, make a remark about Secretary- Christ- Please. Uh, Kissinger just for a second. Um, and I see a lot of people here tonight who I, I, I assume are not, are not principally here to see me, but are here for the Campaign Managers uh, Conference, which is also taking place uh, uh, in, uh, in the next couple of days, as I understand it. Um, on the national security side, uh, of our politics, you really do have a uh, cross-pollination between parties. Uh, I rely on and talk to my predecessors of both parties uh, often. I p- probably speak to Secretary uh, uh, Kissinger once a month, uh, maybe more than that, uh, and he's always incredibly uh, generous with his time and insight. I speak to my uh, immediate predecessor, uh, uh, in the Bush uh, uh, 43, uh, second National Security Advisor Steve Hadley on a regular basis. Um, there really is a tradition, which is not as um, established on the domestic side as it should be, frankly, hmm. uh, of having um, uh, conversations about and talking deeply about uh, national security challenges on a, on a bipartisan, a non nonpartisan basis. There's lots of different reasons for that, including, by the way, institutions like this and the kinds of fora uh, that, that national security people find themselves engaged in. Uh, But it's something that is very much present on the national security side, and it's not present on the domestic side as much as it should be. That's a very
1: interesting observation. One of the things that students can take advantage of, the forum (laughs) has now taken all the previous forums and put them up on their website. Mm -hmm. And the national security advisors who've been here, we've been honored to host, started with Mac Bundy. So you could, and Steve Hadley was here not not that long ago. Let me go to to a tougher question for a second, Tom. So... When people do the raps about the Obama administration, one of the common ones is, well, absence of strategy. I mean, Spig Brzezinski, another one of your predecessors, likes to try to make this argument. So uh, to the proposition that the Obama administration is great at improvisation, but not so much at strategy, what what would you say?
2: Well, I'd I'd respond this way. Um, When we came into office, We came in after an exhausting time in American foreign policy. I don't think that's a partisan comment. It was a time of great exertion. And I see a number of folks here from the prior administration. I don't think they disagree with that. Tremendous exertion um, and some exhaustion uh, and and, and a huge expenditure of uh, capital uh, on the part of the United States and the need for restoration of United States' prestige, power, and authority uh, in the world as kind of a first order problem that needed to be addressed. Uh, and we uh, went about doing that, I think, as a matter of strategy. Uh, and uh, went, up, went about the project of, in the first instance, again, providing that platform from which the United States could pursue its, its uh, long-term interest towards reestablishing that uh, prestige, power, and authority uh, in the world. By the way, there were lots of reasons for this. You know, the, the war in Iraq was a tremendously exerting effort. Uh, the financial crisis had... Uh, uh, had, uh, had, I think, uh, uh, um, uh, went to uh, American prestige, power, and authority as well. There was also the general dynamics of the leading power and others organizing against it. There were lots of reasons for it, but nonetheless, that was the circumstance. And we went about it, uh, Graham, I think, in a, in a, in a quite conscious and strategic, uh, strategic way, really through five or six lines of work. First and foremost was the restoration of the economy, which we were talking about earlier in the conversation, absolutely essential. Uh, President Obama, in a speech at West Point, and I'll have, I don't have this exactly right, but I'll be close, uh, said that, uh, uh, basically art- articulated a, really a, a, an iron law of history. There aren't a lot of iron laws of history, but this is one. That no nation has ever been able to maintain its uh, political and military primacy without maintaining its economic vitality. Uh, and I think that's absolutely true. And we went about, as a first-order priority, restoring the American economy. Uh, second, uh, alliances. Uh, again, through a period of tremendous exertion, a lot of major projects uh, during the period where we came into off- before we came into office, uh, alliances had been frayed, uh, and there had been a lot of work uh, uh, that, had, that really needed to be done. Uh, and we went about consciously restoring uh, American alliances, um, uh, both, by the way, in Europe and in Asia. Uh, that, by the way, I think is important from a number of perspectives. Uh, Alliances are a unique American asset. Uh, If you look at the competitor nations around the world of the United States, no other nation in the world has the system of global alliances that the United States does. And this, of course, has been a global alliance system that's been put together through half a century of bipartisan effort. Uh, And again, a unique American asset. And indeed, I think if you were putting together a... uh, uh, a chart, if you will. You mentioned Dr. Brzezinski. In his, yeah. in his latest book, Strategic Vision, he has a chart where he lists the liabilities and assets of the United States, right. uh, where he's discussing the issue of uh, American decline. Um, and he has a list of things, and we can talk about them if you want. But one uh, that I would add uh, to Dr. Brzezinski's list would be the American Global Alliance System. Right. Uh, and so we set about, and I think, I think our alliances are in very good shape in Europe uh, and in Asia right now. The third aspect of the strategy was to um, work on great power relationships. Uh, we uh, had uh, worked basically through a policy of continuity but intensification with respect to China. But in Russia, if you recall, in the summer of 2008, uh, there was the Georgian invasion, and the Russian relationship um, uh, was at a low point. Uh, and we went about uh, working the great power relationships, again, from a strategic insight, right, which was this that if great power relationships between the United States, great power relationships are in a productive, excuse me, and constructive place, Uh, the United States can achieve a lot with respect to its global priorities. And if they're not, it's going to be a lot more difficult. The fourth uh, area uh, where we put a conscious effort strategic was on emerging powers. And what we tried to do is to step back and ask ourselves the following question. What are the alliances? What What are the groupings that we would need to solve problems 10 and 20 years from now? and identifying those emerging countries, the Brazil, South, South Africa, Turkey, India, I uh, think was a, was a critical piece of this, and we went about consciously working those relationships. There have been um, you know, pluses and minuses, frankly, to our record with respect to enhancing those relationships, but I think on the whole, uh, on the whole we have. The fifth thing that we did uh, was to look at the American footprint and face to the world, and this is really critical, and it comes under the general Rubric of rebalancing, and that's typically discussed in the media as only having to do with Asia. That is, rebalancing out of the war zones uh, in, uh, in the Middle East and in South Asia uh, to uh, a lot more emphasis in Asia, and that was part of it. But it was a more general rebalancing, and again, the question presented was, and every new administration comes in and asks themselves this question: Where are we overinvested, and where are we underinvested? And we took a very strategic look at this uh, and concluded. Geographically, that we were overinvested in the war zones in Iraq and in, and in the Middle East, and that we were underinvested geographically uh, in Asia. We came to the conclusion that we needed a more targeted counterterrorism uh, effort. Uh, a number of other things there, and the last thing we did was to look strategically at the. Well, one of the last things we did was to look strategically at the global architecture, and we can have a longer conversation about this. But we wanted to build an architecture for the 21st century, and one of the things, obviously, we gave an example earlier. Uh, was, for example, the G20, uh, where we asked ourselves, is the G7, G8 mechanism really an effective mechanism for managing economic crisis? And we came to the conclusion that, given where the world was going, right where it was, that having a mechanism that represented 85% of GDP would be a much more effective mechanism. We put together the G20 mechanism. So I, I, I guess that at the end of the day, I'd answer I'd answer the question you asked uh, uh, in, in that way. That we we had a specific problem, a, sp- a specific strategic problem that we had to address. And we went about half a dozen or so lines of efforts to do that in a very conscious way.
1: Okay, and Tom, you mentioned the declinist proposition. So that's one of the topics that's much debated here. Joe has been uh, actively involved in this debate. So uh, obviously, as Americans, we know inherently we deserve to be number one. Providence declared us to be number one. We couldn't conceivably be in decline. But when you do the balance sheet, yeah. um, what do you think?
2: Well, let me talk about that for, for a second. Uh, I think if you look at the fundamentals, uh, uh, in fact, America is not a nation in decline. Uh, and indeed, I'd, I'd ask, let me, let me start with a kind of a broad answer to your question. If you ask yourself the following question, which among our competitor countries right, has a better position going forward than the United States? And the answer to that question is, the United States has a far better position in terms of fundamentals comparatively going forward. And indeed, you had the clip from, uh, from Dr. Kissinger earlier. I asked him this question once a couple of years ago. Uh, and his response was quite straightforward. He said, well, what country in the world would you rather be National Security Advisor for other than the United States? Uh, and I think that's a pretty good answer to the question. The other thing uh, that I would say about this is that uh, you know, we've seen this before, right? And uh, we've seen this question asked. And again, you know, Joe Nye has, uh, has done a, a tremendous work on this. Well, I don't know what year Bound to Lead was, 1990, maybe? 1990, yeah. Uh, has been looking at this question for a long time, uh, uh, right through his latest book on power. Um, uh, and uh, America has an instinct to ask this question a lot, to ask this question about, how are we doing? Are we in decline? Are we moving forward? What do we need to keep moving forward? It's in the American psyche, it's in the American character, and it is one of the great attributes in terms of preventing us from going into decline. Asking that question constantly, testing ourselves against that proposition constantly, I think is really an an attribute of the American psyche and the American uh, mind uh, that uh, there's there's actually a preventive mechanism, kind of a... a, a, It's a great strength, and, it's, and it's a, uh, it, it counteracts that. Now, if you look at the facts, right, uh, again, if you do the balance sheet, uh, I think a fair reading of it would indicate, you know, what, again, in Dr. Dr. Brzezinski's book, he calls residual American strength, right? And if you take the list, it's a fairly powerful list and it really isn't comparable to the rest of the world. Uh, our economy is the biggest economy in the world, uh, but in terms of quality, obviously, uh, and per capita income, it is, it is a very strong economy, right? I think our... And again, Larry will correct me. I think the per capita income in the United States is six or seven times that of China uh, today, Uh, probably 47 to 7 or something like that. Uh, A very strong economy. Second, we are an innovative society. And again, that's a huge strength of the United States. Uh, uh, I think if you reflect back on uh, the biggest innovations uh, that you've seen in your lifetime, uh, you would probably end up tracing most of them to, to the United States and some entrepreneur in the United States. Uh, related to that, the United States has the best university and colleges in the world. I saw a Singapore study which indicated that 17 out of the 20 best universities in the world are in the United States. We have 5% of the world's population. Uh, we have, we're blessed by our geography. A large, fertile landmass, two oceans, and friendly neighbors on, uh, on either side. I, you know, when you think about the sweep of history, right, you shouldn't underestimate that uh, going forward with respect to kind of a coherent, solid a safe, uh, a safe country. Um, the U.S. military balance, right? Uh, the United States military is by far and for any horizon that you can think of, Graham, is going to be the best and strongest military uh, in the world. I think we probably spend as much as the next ten or 11, 10 or eleven nations. We're the only country in the world with uh, really has kind of a global, uh, a global uh, force projection capability. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair statement. Uh, U.S. values. Admired in the world, that our value system is incredibly attractive. Um, the alliance system I mentioned. Um, and two other things that, that, I'll, that I'll mention quickly. One is the quality of our leadership. You know, just last week I saw it. Um, we were in uh, Asia. Uh, the president visited Thailand, uh, Burma, uh, and uh, Cambodia last week. Um, The United States is at the center of these discussions. There's an incredible demand signal in Asia, for example, for United States leadership. The United States is the nation of which people take their leads uh, uh, in Asia. And at the same time we were on that trip, we were also managing, uh, working with uh, the Israeli government and the Egyptian government to try to bring a conclusion to the uh, the Gaza crisis that had developed, again at the center of things. there's a a tradition and a quality of U.S. leadership which is is unmatched. The last thing I'll mention is this. And again, if I were going to take Dr. Brzezinski's chart, I would add this. Energy. Uh, We are, and I see Megan O'Sullivan here, right, who's done a lot of work on on this. We're just at the beginning, I think, of understanding the geostrategic impacts of the American energy future. And I I, I read the the study that you and uh, uh, Amy Jaffrey at uh, Rice had done uh, on this. Um, and it's absolutely correct. We're just at the front end, Graham. You know, five years ago, the assumptions that we had with respect to America's energy future, right, those assumptions of five years ago have been turned on their head. Uh, the United States, the, uh, two Mondays ago, the uh, International uh, uh, Energy Administ- Agency in Paris published a report indicating the United States would be the largest producer of oil in the world in 20- by 2020. Uh, the United States today uh, is the largest gas producer, I think, in the world. Uh, uh, and... Five years ago, I think, and Megan will correct me, I think the predictions were that we would have to import twice as much as we were importing then. Completely turned on its head. This is, a, this is a, a, an important and huge asset for the United States when you think about it, but the impact of that, right, and Dan Jurgen's group has done a lot of work on what the economic contributions of this would be over time. It's a big contribution to GDP. It's a contribution to, to state and federal revenues. It's a big contribution to uh, our balance of payments. It's a contribution to employment, uh, and again, as I said earlier, the geostrategic aspects of this, of the prospect of the United States essentially being, or at least maybe within the Western Hemisphere, being energy independent, if you will. You're never independent of a global market, I understand that, but that having the security of having energy produced, any, any we have to import for being produced in this hemisphere is really a, 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 uh, uh, an important and, uh, 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 set of events to understand, and again, I think we're just now at the front end of understanding the geostrategic impact of it. But it is a
1: very big one on that balance sheet. So I, I take it that the answer is you disagree with Speak.
2: Well, <laughs> I, yeah, well, I that, now listen, but having said that, yeah. having said, let me finish, I'll finish on this. There are challenges, you know? And again, uh, you know, it's a big, lays them out in his book. I think Ed Luce's book, uh, A Time book? to Think, yeah. is a book that has to be dealt yeah, with, frankly, absolutely. in terms of uh, raising concerns about America uh, and, its, and its future. Neil Ferguson here has written very powerfully about the, uh, about the, uh, uh, the debt issues that the United States has going forward. But uh, if you take those challenges and you lay them against the uh, American strengths that I laid out, and, there, and I could go on a long time about this, I won't, no. but uh, um, if you take that uh, and lay it against those challenges, I think you come to this conclusion. They're mainly challenges of political will and governance. Uh, they're not inherent uh, limitations that the United States has, right? Uh, and that, uh, I think, um, gives the United States, obviously, uh, uh, the possibility here of maintaining uh, the permanent position that it has. And, pro- and I would argue the likelihood, because last, last thing I'll say is the United States has shown a propensity over time to be a flexible system responding to challenges. That's our history.
1: It's a remarkable story of recovery when it seems that there's absolutely no alternative. And maybe that's what we'll see in Washington now, I hope so. On nuclear danger, let's turn to a different topic. When McGeorge Bundy was here for the 25th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we just went through the 50th of, he offered a little perspective. Let's see if this video works. Another one What I
3: learned from all this reinforces a conclusion that that many of us have reached and not just those of us who participated in this particular crisis that one of the great keys to the avoidance of danger in the nuclear age is to understand what is and what is not a vital interest to your opponent and to understand the importance of his understanding what is a vital interest to you i think that in one sense what we have been learning in the last two days is that, with more far-sighted, better-informed governments, more able to communicate with each other openly and honestly, the Cuban missile crisis need never have happened.
1: So, nuclear danger. So you're uh, that question than well, I no, but uh, President Obama. Uh, made this his a signature issue, his first international speech, the famous Prague speech. Uh, this is uh, in his bones. It's in your bones. Okay, You're looking to the second term. And we in his kind of uh, first challenge up. So here's Mac saying, uh, did we understand what their vital interests were? Did they understand what our vital interests were? Did we understand how they were looking at the world? Did they understand how it Was this necessary? Was it not? So, tell us a little bit about second term nuclear agenda as you think about the broad picture, as well as the Iran, as the, as the I think, probably most urgent issue. Yeah, yeah.
2: okay, uh, let, let me start with, the, with, as you said, with the broader, the broader take on it. Um, as you said, uh, in May of 2009, the President laid out his, his, his agenda with respect to nuclear policy, uh, and we've implemented a lot of this, right? Uh, uh, the President uh, uh, declared that the United States would undertake a policy that would diminish our reliance on nuclear weapons and would diminish the number of nuclear weapons that the United States had uh, deployed. And we undertook a negotiation with the Russians and entered into the START-II Treaty successfully. It's been ratified by the Senate, uh, number one. Number two, we also undertook, and again, uh, in large part, um, inspired by your book, Nuclear Terrorism, um, undertook a global effort through a series of nuclear security summits, uh, which we will follow on, by the way, in 2014, uh, to uh, identify and lock down, uh, come up with best practices for locking it down, and undertake uh, efforts where we get pledges and uh, commitments from countries all over the world to lock down weapons-grade fissile uh, material. Uh, And that's an ongoing process and one that the President will uh, uh, continue to press uh, into, into, the, into the second term. With respect to the first, by the way, uh, we also believe that we can achieve uh, further reductions and would undertake a negotiation with the Russians to do so uh, going, uh, uh, going forward. Um, the nonproliferation treaty and uh, the norms against proliferation are absolutely critical, and that's where Iran, c- Iran comes in. Uh, and from the outset of the administration, uh, this has been a top, a top priority. Uh, in, no, in no small part because of the threat to the international non-proliferation regime, as well as to the direct threats from, a, uh, from Iran possessing a nuclear weapon. And we undertook from the outset uh, to engage the Iranians. Uh, and we did so directly uh, at the outset of the administration. Uh, the, the Iranians uh, did, were not able at that point to respond. I think a lot of it comes out of the, uh, uh, the, the June 2009 election period. Uh, and this is a real challenge here, which is which is to which is to uh, find a way uh, to communicate and negotiate with a country uh, with whom we've not had relations in 30 years, uh, a country uh, that has deep suspicion of the of the West, and a country that's pursued a set of policies uh, which have been uh, highly destabilizing uh, and contrary to the interests of the world and the United States. Uh, Nonetheless, we undertook this uh, effort, right? Uh, It was a bona fide effort. But we said to the Iranians, and we said to our partners who who encouraged us to undertake this effort, uh, if the Iranians take take us up on this, we'll negotiate with them, and we'll see if we can come to a resolution of the nuclear program. If they don't, uh, we will pursue an effort to present a choice to them, and that would be a pressure campaign that we would would launch. And we did launch that, and we have since then uh, put the toughest sanctions uh, on Iran, I think, has been on any country in many, many years. Uh, tremendous pressure, and today we we'll continue to try to force that choice. Uh, the Amer- Iranian economy today uh, has seen its, uh, the value of its currency drop precipitously. Uh, it has uh, official rates of inflation, I think, are up to 20, 20%, high unemployment, uh, trying to force the point where the Iranians decide uh, that in fact they need to sit down and have it and have a discussion. But this challenge that you have about overcoming the suspicion yeah. Uh, and trying to get to the right decision-makers. This is a real challenge with respect to the Iranian program. Uh, the president has, has attempted to do this directly. Uh, we will continue the, pre- the pressure campaign. We have uh, a, essentially what I would describe as, in terms of the pressure campaign, a uh, multivariable simultaneous set of efforts that we're doing, economic sanctions, uh, political isolation. Uh, we're building up a, you know, in terms of, um, of protecting our allies in the region. We have a very big presence in the Persian Gulf now, as you know. Uh, and a number of other things to try again to, to, present, the, to present this choice that would allow the Iranians to f- try to find themselves uh, at, a, at a place where we could have a direct discussion. I think only a direct discussion is, is going to be able to address the, uh, address the problem. Um, but it, it, will, it will involve the Iranians making a strategic decision too. Okay.
1: Let me take you to one more question, and then I'm going to open it uh, to the audience. Uh, uh, Tom, you've, uh, I think Vice President Biden says... Uh, Donlan is the most important person in the national security decision process. And you've studied uh, national security decision processes. You've thought about different national security advisors. I, you and I have talked about you know, how you've sort of considered how you're trying to yeah. manage your role. Talk about the interaction between secrecy on the one hand and a 24-7 uh, culture of leaks, intrusive press, and a good example is the Bin Laden affair, where I think the biggest surprise to most people was that the US government kept uh, the most interesting secret in the world secret for six months while you deliberated. So what is secrecy, uh, how, how does it relate to a sound del- deliberative decision-making process as you think about managing uh, NSC? Yeah.
2: Well, um, I mean, the first thing I would say is, is that uh, uh, process, and stru- process and structure really matters uh, in national security policymaking. You know, Eisenhower said that uh, uh, a good process uh, won't guarantee you a great policy result, but a bad process will pretty much will pretty much guarantee you that you don't you don't get to the right uh, you don't get the right uh, answer. And I think that's right. And we constructed from the outset a uh, very consciously uh, a process uh, for uh, deliberation and timely decision making. Uh, our structure is based on the structure put together by Brent Scowcroft and Bob Gates uh, and the Bush 41 administration, and we did it quite consciously. Um, and it involves uh, a series of, uh, of, of committees, from uh, uh, interagency policy committees to a deputies committee, which is really kind of the principal operational committee in the, the government, to a principals committee in the National Security Council. Uh, and we put in place a set of rules of the road, if you will, uh, when we came into it, when we came into office. Uh, that uh, uh, pretty much guaranteed the principles, if you will, the principal foreign policy uh, decision makers, uh, that there would be timely decisions made, uh, that the process would be to them transparent, uh, that we would have uh, careful written records that would be circulated within 24 hours of meetings, um, that um, uh, there would be, um, uh, uh, again, careful deliberation and access to the president on a structured basis, That everybody agreed that this was the sole process uh, that this was uh, that they would work through, uh, and it's worked quite well. And I think that was the backdrop against which we undertook the Bin Laden uh, operation, uh, because that was the platform on which we operated. And people, the the key people, were used to this, uh, used to this process, trusted this process uh, uh, to get uh, to uh, rigorously review options and come to uh, and come to decisions. Uh, I think that that trust. Uh, is absolutely critical uh, uh, in, in, uh, in terms of the process because people, uh, again, uh, believe that they can talk openly, uh, that they will be heard, uh, that their ideas will be processed, uh, that the president will consider them. Uh, and that's essentially what we did, what we did in that. Now, now, secrecy and confidentiality is absolutely critical in the national security uh, process. Uh, and, it, and it provides, if you will, the space to deliberate carefully. It provides the space to uh, uh, consider all ideas. Uh, it, does, it provides the space for uh, people doing these uh, deliberations to speak openly with each other. Uh, and again, you can only get there, I think, through having the right team, uh, the right process, a process which has built a culture of trust. Uh, and that essentially, I think, was, a, was, was really critical to the Bin Laden, the Laden You're right. Uh, You know, we we essentially began the deliberations on the bin Laden uh, operation in August of uh, 2010, and the operation was in May of 2011. Uh, And we had, uh, um, I think, um, probably two dozen interagency meetings on it
1: during the course of that period. It's an amazing, uh, given the well-known fact in Washington that nobody in Washington can keep a secret. I remember once you said the only way to keep a secret in Washington is not to tell anybody. Well, uh, that's a fair, and that's uh, fair. you kept it to a, to a quite uh, tight circle, yeah. but part of a deliberative process that had already been established.
2: So part of the deliberative process had already been established, right? You know, on a uh, you know on a you know, consciously small, uh, consciously small, small uh, basis. The other thing is, Grant, frankly, is that the the, the the President Obama's national security team uh, understood the importance of this operation understood the, uh, uh, how critical this was to the national interest um, and dealt with it that way. Uh, and, and indeed, by the way, in terms of secrecy, uh, on this operation, uh, you know, we had uh, uh, operational, uh, operational security was absolutely essential. Why? One, as I said, as part of the process, right, in order to have every option, uh, every option assessed. But second, in terms of the operation itself, uh, if the operation uh, had leaked... Uh, I think we would be guaranteed that Osama bin Laden would We'd not be have gone, been yeah. at Abbottabad in the compound. Uh, if the operation had leaked, it would have put the uh, special forces who carried out this operation in grave danger. Uh, and so operational security was absolutely, uh, was absolutely uh, essential.
1: That was an amazing uh, process. Do, do you want to say something? Oh, okay. This gentleman gets to go first here. Okay. The.
0: Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, Tom, you've worked uh, closely with uh, three presidents, President Carter, President Clinton, and President Obama. They each have their own styles and uh, strengths. Uh, I think it would be interesting for this audience here to hear you uh, reflect on the distinctive uh, strengths and aspects of... uh, the personalities of the presidents uh, that uh, were particularly striking to you. I framed the question the way I did because while they probably each have weaknesses as well, I assumed you wouldn't share those. And so I (laughs) thought it best to ask you to highlight their respective (laughs) strengths.
2: Yeah, I think that that one of the keys to uh, having the opportunity to work for three presidents closely is not answering questions like that. I think that's the, I think that's the, I think that that's the, I think that's the, uh, I think that's the first thing that I would say uh, in response. They all, I, listen, the, I've, I've been privileged to work with, uh, with, 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 uh, with three presidents, as, as you said, Larry. Uh, and, um, you know, I also am uh, fairly old school about this. Uh, and my, you know, my observations on my interactions with the presidents, I think I'll, I think I will, uh, I think I'll keep for, an- keep for another time.
1: Good. We'll let this gentleman and please introduce yourself. Questions should be on any topic you want that's relevant, as long as they're brief.
3: Great.
0: Uh, Mr. Donilon, I want to thank you for being here to start off. My name is Ibrahim Khan. Uh, I'm a junior at the college from Lahore, Pakistan. And my question is about the United States relationship with Pakistan and how you see that relationship evolving across the next four years. Uh, President Obama's in his second term Uh, what changes do you foresee and in particular I would appreciate it if you could say a few words about the use of drones maybe okay
2: Um, with respect to the relationship with 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 Pakistan um, it it has been it has had its challenges Uh, and it's uh, it's understandable frankly under the stress of conflict in that region uh, for an extended period of time including the United States involvement in Afghanistan for us uh, since, uh, since the early 2000s, uh, point one. Point two is that uh, Pakistan has been a critical partner of the United States in terms of its counterterrorism efforts. Uh, and indeed, uh, Pakistan has lost uh, many thousands of its own forces uh, in uh, battles with, uh, with terrorist groups. Uh, and that partnership with the United States is, has been uh, critically important. It's important, obviously, as part of the effort that we've undertaken uh, since coming into office, uh, working on the work that our predecessors have done uh, to uh, make every effort we can uh, to defeat al-Qaeda and the associated forces. Uh, And we have done that, and we have have managed a targeted effort every single day of the week uh, to uh, do the best that we can do to put al-Qaeda and associated forces on the path to defeat, and to protect the United States of America. And the frame for this is really important for the second part of your question, which in the frame here is that we are an in Internet, we are in a, a, an armed conflict uh, with, uh, with, with, with Al- Qaeda. Uh, back to Pakistan for just a second, though. Um, uh, again, we have had, uh, we've had disagreements, uh, and we have had episodes where uh, there have been difficulties. And indeed, one of the, one of the difficult uh, moments that we had was in the wake of the Abbottabad raid, frankly. Uh, and our effort to get uh, uh, and to bring to justice Osama bin Laden. Uh, and, you know, we took that into account, uh, that in fact that there would be sovereignty concerns in, in, uh, in Pakistan. You know, I had a conversation with the, with the, with the uh, head of the armed forces in Pakistan after the raid. Uh, and we, again, we knew there would be sovereignty concerns, but uh, we had to make that kind of judgment, right? You may, we made the judgment that in fact that this was so critical to the United States' interest that we were going to go ahead. President Obama has said since his campaign that if we had 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 an opportunity unilaterally to take action against Osama bin Laden, we would do so. And number three, that uh, uh, as I was saying to Graham, operational security uh, mandated that we didn't tell uh, hardly anybody in our own government, never mind another government uh, with with respect to this. So, um, again, we've had ups and downs. I think right now, uh, and we also had a terrible incident, you know, last November where uh, the United States uh, uh, forces um, mistakenly killed a number of Pakistani forces uh, in, a, uh, uh, in, again, in a terrible incident, which we had to work through. And we work through these things, right? Uh, because I do think that we have a, a, a strategic interest in defeating terrorism and in having a stable, uh, a stable South Asia ult- ultimately. I think right now, frankly, we're in a period where we are uh, having a much kind of a steadier a pace of engagements and discussions about the basics of our relationship, because we don't have a crisis uh, right now that we're trying to get past. And I think it's an important period right now for us to continue to work with the Pakistanis on the issue of uh, uh, UAVs, on uh, unmanned uh, aerial vehicles. Um, our effort there uh, again is in the framework of our counterterrorism efforts, which is in the, which is a, a in a conflict against. Uh, uh, okay, and associated forces. Uh, when the president came into office, he he uh, mandated that we undertake a targeted effort, uh, an effort focused not in some general way, but in a very specific way on those individuals and groups that presented the greatest threat to the United States. And that's what we've take, That's what we, that's what we've undertaken. We're using all the tools that we have, by the way. And uh, uh, the unmanned vehicles are just one of the tools. We also use we we use capability building with our, capabilities building with our partners. And Yemen's a good example of that. Uh, uh, for example, uh, we use assistance. Uh, we do a lot of partnering efforts, as I said, and a number of uh, uh, a number of, uh, of all the t- number of tools that we have. Do this is just one of the tools uh, that we that we that we use. The next point I think uh, that, that's critically important uh, is that uh, our efforts are done. Uh, in full compliance with domestic and international law. Again, in the framework of an international armed conflict against groups uh, uh, that, we, uh, uh, that, that present a threat to the United States. When I say uh, domestic law, uh, we do this pursuant to the authorization uh, for military force. Uh, again, targeted on uh, not some random effort, not some unnecessarily broad effort, but a very targeted effort uh, against those groups that present the greatest threat to the, to the United States. And as a matter of international law, uh, again, uh, uh, those groups that present a, a, a direct uh, threat to the United States, a significant direct threat to the United States, uh, we have uh, the right uh, to, uh, to take action against. Um, it's done prudently, and it's done in a narrow, a narrow way, uh, with uh, a lot of uh, deliberation, and uh, uh, very conscious with respect to collateral damage uh, and civilian casualties. And indeed, if you think about the tool, uh, and again, it is a tool. Uh, there is a, uh, it's as opposed to other tools, right? And if you compare the use of, of, of a targeted, uh, targeted effort here, again, against those individuals and groups who present the greatest threat to the United States, as opposed to a broader military action, uh, in terms of you know, the international law concepts of uh, limiting collateral damage, of necessity, of distinction, of humanity, um, uh, that is, a, uh, I think, a wise tool, uh, frankly. Um, now, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about uh, transparency uh, with respect to these, uh, with respect to these uh, efforts. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Jack Goldsmith, who teaches at the uh, law school here, uh, uh, makes, made this point very powerfully, uh, uh, and uh, I guess not his latest book, but the book, book before <laughs> that. Uh, and we have made an effort here to... Uh, lay out uh, the principles that undergird uh, our, our counterterrorism efforts. Uh, our counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan, has given two very important speeches, one actually at the law school here, uh, and then another at the Wilson Center. Uh, the Attorney General has addressed the question of uh, whether a United States citizen could be considered a leader of an uh, of a, of a, of a, uh, enemy group and could, uh, uh, and could uh, as, you know, as a matter of uh, uh, legal, uh, as a matter of law, be, uh, be targeted. Um, uh, The general counsels of the Defense Department and the CIA have laid out other aspects of this. Uh, So again, at the President's direction, uh, we have tried to be as transparent as we can with respect to principles. We obviously will not, cannot talk about specific military actions, but you wouldn't talk about specific military operations uh, in any context, not just with respect to this tool. So those are some of the uh, thoughts that I have in response to your question.
1: Thank you.
3: Gentleman in the Loge. Uh, Mr. Donnellan, thank you very much again for sharing your thoughts with us uh, here tonight. Uh, I'm Josh Barthel. I'm a student here at the college, and I'm asking this question on behalf of the JFK Junior Forum Committee. Uh, And the question is, do you interpret the results of the recent election as a more permanent shift to the left in U.S. politics? And if so, or if not, what would you anticipate to be the uh, upcoming response on the Republican side in terms of policymaking? Thank you.
2: Uh, unfortunately, Josh, I, my uh, my position really doesn't allow me to comment on politics. Uh, we uh, uh, we make every effort, the National Security Council, to 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 uh, uh, to run a non-partisan, nonpartisan effort here, and I just I just really can't comment on politics. That's a, uh, something I would have commented on in another life, but not this one. Okay. Uh. I think in
1: another life it would be an interesting answer, too, but save it for now. This gentleman in the next lunch.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Alex Jurgen. I'm a joint uh, student between the business school and the Kennedy School. My question is on Burma. Um, What do you view as a result of the recent trip, and what do you see as both the role of the Burma-U.S. relationship and Burma's sort of role in the broader Asian security context?
2: Yeah, thanks, Alex. That's a good question. As as you know... uh, uh, president Obama was the first president uh, uh, to visit Burma uh, last week, uh, and it wasn't really a historic, a historic visit. It's the result of a lot of work, and it's basically been an engagement with the Burmese right, and an action-for-action action system. right. So they take, and it's been kind of a remarkable uh, journey that they've, been, they've had underway really since the summer of 2011. Uh, actions taken by the Mur- Burmese would be met by actions by the United States in terms of loosening up uh, engagement, sending an ambassador, uh, loosening up the sanctions, and I think that that engagement has worked has worked well. You know, it's a, I think that the Burmese, Burmese were looking for uh, a way out of isolation, a way forward with respect to particularly economic development, uh, and we're willing to take that journey with them as long as they're willing to keep moving along on the road towards democracy and openness. Uh, they have a ways to go, uh, obviously, uh, going forward. Uh, we've worked very closely uh, with Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, on this uh, on this project, the president met with her uh, during his uh, during his recent visit. Uh, she's been a very important uh, uh, a very important voice in terms of informing our uh, our deliberations uh, on Burma. Uh, but it's been again I, I have to say it's been a remarkable remarkable set of steps go- going forward here. But again, they have challenges going forward. Uh, they have to continue to I think open up the political system, uh, move on the path towards democracy. Um, uh, uh, they have ethnic conflicts, which, as you know, uh, are a very big problem uh, for them. That they need, and they, you know, and they've taken steps uh, to engage in, in in preliminary, if you will, uh, understandings with various ethnic groups. You know, uh, in Rakhine Province, they have a very uh, active and uh, uh, terrible uh, circumstance underway with the Rohingya uh, minority group there. Uh, but I think the president comes away again um, with this conclusion that the, our engagement has been uh, productive at this point, that Burma is on the path towards uh, a better place in terms of integration in the, in to, in, into the world, um, that um, uh, if they continue to move forward, we can continue to, uh, to aid that. We agreed, by the way, to reopen our AID effort uh, in, uh, in Rangoon, uh, and we'll continue to take this, to take this journey with them uh, as long as they're willing to continue to move ahead. There was tremendous excitement In uh, in Rangoon, we were there. You know, the the, the road was lined uh, three and four deep. Uh, As you can imagine, an American president coming to uh, Rangoon, Burma, was quite an event. Uh, You know, they have tremendous uh, poverty problems. I think only 20% of the populace has has electricity, so there's a lot of work to be done. But they're opening up, and they have an opportunity now. Last thing I'll say about this, because you asked a regional question, uh, is that uh, I'd underscore uh, this point. Uh, This is a good example for the North Koreans to take a look at uh, in terms of their uh, steps going forward here. You know, a new leader who at least has proclaimed publicly that his priority is uh, the economic well-being of his people, uh, terribly isolated, uh, and it would be an important example, I think, for the North Koreans to take a look at in terms of the path that they might travel down. The president has offered them that path. To date, they haven't taken that. They've taken an entirely different path here. Uh, but it's an important example, I think. Uh, I think for the region, an important, uh, and it's been a success in terms of engagement. Thank you. Good. This gentleman, please.
3: Um, hi, uh, thank you, Mr. Donnellan, for visiting us here. My name is John Soylu. I am a uh, sophomore from Turkey at the college, and um, I have a question about the Patriot missiles that are currently being in the process of installed in Turkey. Right. NATO is looking for uh, missile sites. And some of the Turkish media have argued that Russia and Iran's vocal opposition to the placement of these missiles is because uh, Iran, uh, because the US or Israel is going to strike Iran, and this will provide defensive capabilities to the uh, NATO bases in Turkey, and then Syria is just an excuse, um, which is a very interesting comment. How would you respond to those, uh, to those comments?
2: I'd say a couple of things about it, uh, and there's t- again, there's two different, there's t- two different uh, aspects to this. There's the general uh, European missile defense system which is being put together, w- and Turkey is a NATO member, uh, and they have agreed uh, as part of that European-wide project uh, to participate in terms of having a radar in, uh, uh, in Turkey. This is for the protection of, uh, of Europe generally. Uh, and an important role for the, Turks, uh, for, for the Turks to play. We, by the way, as I said in my opening comments to Graham's question, have undertaken an d- aggressive effort, and a deep effort, to uh, establish a really productive relationship with, 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 with the Turkish government as, a, as an emerging power. Uh, the first trip that the president took as president was in April 2009. He went to the, 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 uh, to the uh, G20 meeting in the NATO summit in Europe, and then went to, to Turkey. Uh, and that was not a coincidence. Uh, that was a statement by the United States that the United States was going to invest in the relationship with Turkey as an important partner uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, in, Central, uh, in Central Asia. I have to tell you that I think to date that has been a, a, a big success, that the personal relationship between uh, Prime Minister Erdogan and President Obama has become quite good and quite productive. And the, and the relationship between our two nations, I think, has really deepened and been quite productive. Now, on the, the second issue that, with respect to the, uh, with respect to missile defense, is a, is a more recent issue, right? And that is that the Turks have requested that NATO provide them with some missile defense capabilities uh, with respect to the potential threat from Syria. Uh, and you know, as a NATO ally. Uh, That is something, obviously, that we uh, and uh, we obviously would would, uh, be very much in favor of, in terms of you know uh, protecting the safety and security of our our ally there. So it's not uh, that that, that's expressly about their concerns about uh, about what's going on in Syria, Uh, and so there are two different two different aspects to it. it: is the general missile defense system of which Turkey's agreed to be part, and that's NATO-wide, agreed at 28 uh, nations. our uh, phased adaptive approach, but then there's a second piece which has, uh, which has specifically to do with concerns that the Turkish government has with respect to the uh, threat from Syria. Yeah. This
1: lady on the left, please. Yeah.
0: Thank you very much for speaking with us today, Mr. Hi. Donilon. My name is Neha Dalal. I'm a freshman at the college. So over your career, what have you seen as some of the major shifts in how we address the issue of national security, specifically how have issues like the economic recession, like changing demographics? like globalization, even like the political gridlock, affected how we address such issues? And how do you see these issues continuing to change over the next four years and further?
2: Forty years, okay. Uh, That's a hard question. Uh, I mean, I I, I do think I I just just respond this way. Um, It is absolutely essential for the United States to regain its economic um, footing and for us to uh, uh, get on the path to growth. Uh, absolutely essential, uh, obviously for the people of the United States, but also in terms of our position and leadership position in the world. Uh, and, and we're on that path, you know, there's a, and again, Larry can comment on this more, uh, more expertly than I can. Um, you know, we need to obviously uh, strengthen our financial system and look for those places where the growth's going to come from, right? And one of those, I think, is the energy sector. Uh, moving forward here, but there are there are others. So economic recovery is absolutely at the core of our national security. It's also important, though, in terms of uh, uh, global growth. Uh, it is uh, uh, a growing world, right? Will be a more peaceful world. Uh, is I think a, I think is a pretty a pr- pr- pretty a pretty safe proposition uh, going uh, going forward here. Uh, so we've been working obviously uh, with nations around the world on growth strategies. Uh, and it's essential that there be contributions from each of the major growth, uh, uh, g- growth uh, centers in the, uh, uh, in the world, uh, China and Europe in particular. Now, Europe has been a particular focus. Uh, they've had a deep challenge with respect to the debt crisis they've had. The United States is encouraging the resolution of that crisis. They've made progress, I think, uh, in the last several months. Now, but that's, that, that's absolutely critical. The economies of the world are interlinked. Uh, and uh, each uh, major growth center has to follow responsible policies, uh, and make its appropriate contribution to international uh, international, uh, international, uh, growth. Um, There are real challenges, though, uh, in terms of policy making, uh, uh, arising from the question that you ask. When I first started at the White House in 1977, uh, there were uh, three television networks, no CNN, no C-SPAN, no cell phones, no computers. Uh, IBM's electric typewriters and telephones, uh, three broadcasts a night, uh, where when they would come do this, and some of the media folks are here, they would come uh, and film the issue, the event of the day, put it in a bag, and run it over to the bureau, right, uh, in order to get it on the air that night. And tremendous change in terms of acceleration of information uh, globally. Uh, and that puts tremendous pressure on policymakers, uh, I think. Um, you know, there's an immediacy uh, to challenges now uh, that, um, that um, uh, you didn't face uh, uh, even 25 years ago. Uh, and that acceleration is going to continue, uh, I think. And it's a real challenge for policymakers. It's a real challenge for policymakers to put in place uh, uh, the ability to deal with this, Uh, It's a real challenge for policymakers to make sure you have processes and systems in place, which allows you not to be caught up in the cascading crises of the day, but to have a way to look forward uh, to deal with longer-term challenges. So the world you describe uh, uh, is a a challenging one for policymakers going
1: forward, I think. So Kathy is telling me we're close to the end here. We're going to take these three questions just... Briefly, state your name and the brief questions, and then we'll let Tom wrap up for these three. This lady in the loge. please.
3: Thank you so much for your remarks. I'm Elsa Kenya. I'm a student at, a co- at the college. And with regard to Iran's nuclear program, how do you characterize China's current position and level of cooperation with US efforts, whether in terms of sanctions or reducing oil imports? And what role do you see China playing in the pressure campaign that you described?
2: In the okay, light, we'll the, take this. Yeah, yeah, what, was the, what was the last part of the question? What and role did China play? What role
3: do you see China's playing in the pressure campaign I that see. you described?
1: Okay. okay. Thanks, this yeah. gentleman.
3: Hi, Jacob Dalal from the Kennedy School. Um, you mentioned briefly the 2009 election in Iran, which was followed by the Green Movement, that short-lived uprising. With the benefit of hindsight and uh, the Arab Spring and the re- regimes that were toppled during the Arab Spring, what might President Obama have done differently uh, during that? Short lived uh, effort, and what well, should he have done the same?
1: Okay, and you get the last
3: question. Hi, my name is Sita Goffard, and my question is very simple, actually. Uh, what most keeps you up at night? And <laughs> what, uh, I guess, looking at all the challenges you faced, what are you most sort of apprehensive about?
2: Okay. okay. Good. All Thank right. you. I think that so may fall. a pretty easy question. I, yeah, I think that may fall into the same category as Professor Summers', Dr. Summers' question <laughs> uh, on, on uh, China and, and Iran. Um, they have, been a, they have been a very good partner with respect to our Iranian uh, policy. Uh, Iran opposes uh, the Iranian acquisition of a nuclear weapon. Uh, they've made that clear. Uh, they have participated uh, actively in the campaign, uh, the effort uh, to try to force a choice uh, on Iran. They participated uh, actively with us and in close cooperation with respect to the economic sanctions efforts uh, that we've had. Uh, and they have, as you know, in the last round of reviews, Uh, had a uh, reduction in their number, in the amount of imports of of Iranian oil. Uh, And uh, they'll be a close partner going forward, uh, we hope as well. Um, It's been, you know, on on China, uh, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it uh, tonight. You know, I spent an enormous amount of time on this and a lot of time with the Chinese uh, Chinese leadership. Uh, This has been uh, really a very big project for the Obama administration. President Obama has met with President Hu Jintao 12 times in the course of four years. Uh, we have had a deep engagement. Um, we have elements of competition uh, uh, and, uh, and cooperation uh, with the Chinese. But I would say on the, on the, on the Iranian nuclear side, it's been, it's been in the main cooperation. Uh, now they have, uh, 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 I think we have with them, um, a joint concern about stability in the Persian Gulf. Uh, we have with them a joint concern about the price of oil. They're a very big oil producer, and again, if you look forward, and I said earlier today that we're just at the beginning of understanding the geostrategic impact of uh, our oil future, I think as China looks at their oil future, they are going to be uh, you know, uh, very much concerned about future stability in the Middle East uh, as, a source of, uh, as a source of oil. So we have joint interests, uh, if you will, uh, that I think, as it must in every cooperation you have in another country, fuel our, uh, fuel our efforts. So I think to date uh, that we've had a cooperative effort with the Chinese with respect to the Iranian with respect to the Iranian project, uh, very important. As we've had on a number of uh, a number of projects with the, uh, with the with the Chinese, we've had our disagreements as well, uh, and we have uh, you know a lot of work to do with the Chinese, particularly in the economic area. But in this but in this area, I'd have to I'd have to say cooperation has been quite good to date. Um, I would, would would rather look forward with respect to the uh, with respect to to Iran, uh, and what's going on inside Iran right now. Um, Again, as I mentioned earlier, their, the economy is under tremendous pressure uh, right now as a result of things. I think I think more than we appreciate here, and more than the Iranians expected, frankly, uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the pressure on their on their system right now. Uh, and I think it is forcing uh, consideration of how they're going to deal with this. You know, you really do have to ask yourself the question: If you're an Iranian policymaker, what exactly have we gained here, right? Uh, and what have we lost? Uh, by the refusal to seriously engage with the international community on the, on the nuclear program. Uh, what has been the cost to the Iranian people? What has been the cost to Iranian prestige and its position in the world? Today, Iran is more isolated, I think, than it, than it uh, has ever been. Uh, you know, if you look at the polling data in the Middle East right now, if you looked at data uh, in the mid-2000s, say 2006, 2007, you would have found uh, approval ratings of the Iranian regime and the Iranian system you know, at 15, 60 percent, in most uh, in most countries in the Middle East today, I think you'd find it in, in the in, in the teens or the single digits uh, going forward. Why is that? It's fomenting sectarian uh, uh, conflict. Uh, it's the program, uh, the the nuclear program. It's a support for terrorism. Uh, so they are very isolated today. And the reason I said look forward is we do have elections in Iran, as you know, in June of 2013. Uh, and I think all these pressures are coming together on the system at a very interesting time. On the issue of uh, uh, what keeps me up at night, uh, it all keeps me up at night. Right? You know, and um, uh, but it couldn't be more interesting every day. Uh, uh, it's intellectually challenging, uh, invigorating, uh, and a, a unique privilege and honor to work uh, to work in the White House and work with the president. And. Uh, uh, And I don't take that for granted any day that I walk in there.
1: Well, on that note, it's my uh, sad duty to say that we've come to the end of this session. We look forward to Tom coming back, but let's say thank you very much for coming and for your service.